Welcome to the Soft Life with Sadie Baddies. Sadie Baddies is the antidote to mental health stigma, and this podcast is hosted by yours truly, Priscilla O. Adjman. We are a virtual sanctuary centering Black and multiracial people, and we prioritize the mental and emotional nourishment that is the foundation of collective healing in our communities. Thank you for being here. Welcome back to season two of the Soft Life Baddies. I'm so, so happy to be here. I'm so grateful to be sharing space with you and starting off this season two, I have so much gratitude for the community that we've built, um, not just for this podcast, but for the Saudi Baddies community in general. We've grown so much. We've expanded to a global audience and I'm just so excited to come back recharged, renewed and rejuvenated for this season. I took a break, a much needed break as y'all know, from recording and sharing episodes after our season one finale. And I think it really has inspired me to come back creatively with new ideas, um, new guests, new concepts, everything. So I'm really enjoying this beginning of the fall season. It's just ushering in so much creativity and refreshing energy for me. So I want to share some highlights of season one. I would love to share some of the most exciting moments for me I think number one recording my first episode y'all know that I've shared before how much imposter syndrome I had going into even starting this podcast I think just knowing that I've overcome that fear of messing up or the fear of not doing something right or the fear of not knowing enough to execute something that I'm really passionate about just knowing that that disappeared finally and I was able to share makes me so happy and proud of myself and I want to acknowledge that so from season one our most downloaded episode was our second episode which was four ways to invite softness into your life that was our most downloaded and our most shared episode so if you didn't get a chance to check that out definitely check out that episode when you can or any of the other episodes you didn't get to listen to during season one another highlight that I would love to share is We have over 10,000 downloads and we started this podcast in April of this year. So literally six months ago and we have over 10,000 downloads, which just shows how deeply connected we really are. And the fact that so many of you share this with your friends, with your families, with your your coworkers is amazing. And I just can't be any more grateful. And... The top five countries that we are downloaded in include the United States, India, Barbados, where we're actually trending as the number one mental health and wellness podcast in Barbados, the United Kingdom, and Brazil. So shout out to our global audience. I see you. I welcome you in and thank you for being here and being a beautiful part of this space. So if you're a new listener, definitely check out season one. Season one was set up as all solo episodes, and I really designed it that way so that there'd be a foundation for the rest of this podcast. And you'll, you know, in that season one, you'll learn about the origin story of Sadie Baddies, my journey as a content creator, and understand the beautiful Sadie Baddies community. We got overwhelming positive feedback on our first season, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for listening, downloading, and sharing with everyone you know. We can't grow this podcast without you, so if you've already provided us with a review or rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, thank you so much. This may seem like a really small effort, but it really does support and grow our community. So for today's guest, today's guest is a very special friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Chanel Ramsubik, and I met her about three years ago, actually, online on Instagram. We just connected. We eventually met in person, and she's an amazing, amazing woman. We actually ended up working at the same um, hospital a few years ago in New York City. And I would love to introduce our first guest. So Dr. Chanel Ramsubik is an adult and adolescent psychiatrist that has worked in multiple boroughs around New York City and Oakland, California. She is second generation Trinidadian Canadian who has spent the majority of her career working in black and brown communities, providing mental health care to those who have been historically underserved. 
She's the co-chair of the Minority Affairs Committee, where she helped to create the monthly series called Dismantling Racism, Building Anti-Racist Psychiatrist. Her community involvement is centered around activism work. She is a senior member of the Riders for Black Lives Racial Justice Group. You may see them riding bikes through New York, but behind the scenes, they have been working to create social, economic, and educational equality for the BIPOC community. She is also an active member of the anti-racism work group at Mount Sinai Hospital, which she is dedicated to understanding structural racism in psychiatry and developing policies to increase health equity in the Black community. I also want to mention um, a trigger warning and sensitivity warning because there is brief mention of suicide, self-harm, and substance use disorder. So want to provide that um, warning for our listeners. And welcome to season two. Thank you for making time. How are you feeling? Where are you located right now? I'm so good. I love that you reached out to me as soon as you did. I jumped at the chance to be on this podcast. I absolutely love what you've done with Sadie Baddies and how you continue to educate women that look like us. It's it's really a blessing to have you. And I'm so grateful to be here. Um, I am currently actually in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, yes. But on, my next step will be going to um, Oakland, California, where I'll be starting my next job as an outpatient psychiatrist. Amazing. Amazing. We love to see it. I love being able to talk to you whenever, wherever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although we're on different coasts right now, this still feels like we're in the same room. So I love it. Um, so I, you know, we know that you are second generation Trinidadian Canadian, but I would love for you to speak about what some of the most defining moments of your upbringing was. Mm -hmm. This was a really, it's kind of a tough question for me because there's so many things that happened to me in childhood and so many aspects of it. But I think I have to talk about the fact that, you know, I was born in Toronto, Canada as a second generation immigrant. Um, I was the second oldest of four siblings. Um, and my parents were originally born in Trinidad and Tobago. And so my dad immigrated when he was 19 and my mom immigrated when she was 11. And they actually met in Toronto in high school and lived in the same area. And they've been together or were together ever since. Um, and being a second generation immigrant, it really gave me the opportunity to experience two completely different cultures growing up. Um, I obviously had the West Indian culture at home and in my extended family, but then also I experienced this Canadian culture at school. And I think having immigrant parents was something that you and I really bonded over. Definitely. Yeah, the immigrant experience, there's a lot of commonalities, like there's a lot of similar similarities, despite Absolutely. the fact that our parents were from different places. Like, for example, like all immigrants, um, they're wealthy and they seamlessly, you know, integrate into, I'm just kidding. Obviously, that's not the case. <laughs> I was like... Girl, I don't know whose immigrant parents you talking about, but... <laughs> like, not at all, right? Like, they came no. over, and it was the complete opposite. Yeah. They yeah. left their country because they were looking for better opportunities, and they came to a country, and it, it was a rude awakening, I think, for a lot of people. And so, anyways, when I was growing up, my parents had sacrificed a lot to provide for me and my siblings. And I really didn't recognize that until later on in my life. But when I was a kid, I was just annoyed that I couldn't go on vacation. But really the sacrifice was enormous. Like my mom and dad were in their, their um, 20s when they had me and my sister. And uh, my mom dropped out of college to have me and my sister and didn't go back until she was, until we were toddlers, me and my older sister are 18 months apart. Mm -hmm. And my mom always wanted to go back because education was very important to her. And I think mm -hmm. it was most likely because they had this very specific idea of what success was. 
they knew that they wanted us to, for us to be successful, it meant that we needed to be financially free, that we mm. needed to have stable careers. And that's probably why most of my life, they encouraged us to be in higher education and to pursue careers that were considered stable and considered mm -hmm. secure because they wanted to provide a level of security, a level of certainty mm -hmm. for us. That yeah. There's a certainty that we would be safe and taken care of. And that certainty was something that they were not given. Mm. And um, so, you know, going along this, this belief that they wanted us to be successful, that really pushed them to put us into very competitive schools um, to make sure that we were getting the best education, the top-notch education so that we could be prepared for the for the working, the working world. And yeah. it just so happened that my middle school, my high school, my university, my medical school, I was the minority. I was literally sometimes the only black child in the classroom or the only black student in the classroom. And I don't really think, I mean, my parents didn't really, I don't feel like my parents really prepared me um, for what it meant to be black or what it mm. meant to be the only black kid in a room full of white kids, sometimes mm -hmm. very wealthy white kids who had the privilege and entitlement that I didn't get navigating the world. And, mm. you know, I, I've reflected on that. And I some things that come to mind is the fact that my parents immigrated to this country, my dad, Trinidadian, um, ethnically Indian, and my mom, mm -hmm. Tobagonian, ethnically African. Mm. And I don't really think that they fully understood what it meant to be Black in North America because they weren't really taught the history. Right. Um, history, as we know, has been sanitized and has been minimized and things purposely left out to make it less um, really disturbing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Things really purposely left out. And maybe they wanted to also protect me from white supremacy, the trauma of white supremacy, the yeah. dehumanization of what it's like to be black in a world or in a society where white supremacy exists. Mm. Um, either way, um, I could piece things together. I was right. able to observe and see the way that the world was. And you didn't really need to be taught who was the dominant race and who was the subordinate race. And I knew where right. my place was. Wow. Um, so despite that honest truth of being a part of the subordinate race, I, I wanted to not just thrive, but I really wanted to be successful. Like I really wanted to prove to my parents that, not just prove to my parents, more like I wanted to, to, to like almost thank them mm -hmm. for the sacrifice that they did by, by being successful and being able to take care of myself. And I think that I wanted to prove to society that I wasn't a stereotype. Right. And so that really pushed me. And I, I went along for the ride. You know, the idea that a higher education was meant for me and would be a way for me to attain social mobility. And I, I did that. And it usually took me far away from my family. I went to high school 45 minutes away from them. Then I went to college two hours away from my family. And then I went to medical school in the Caribbean. And then mm. I did my residency and fellowship in New York City. Right. And so I grew up in these different environments, constantly changing and further and further away from my family. And looking back, I recognized that I was really able to change my identity in each one of those different locations. Wow. I was able to kind of like shed different things that people expected of me or things that people tried to put on me. I was able to shed them because it was very freeing being in these new places around mm -hmm. different people who knew nothing about me. 
And you don't need to go into different environments to reinvent yourself. But I definitely had that. That was a luxury that I got. And I know that being able to be in those different environments and reinvent myself is a huge part of who I am today. That chameleon aspect of assimilation is so interesting. And I'm so glad that you spoke on that because I think a lot of us first gen or second gen and, you know, people or uh, children of immigrants, we find ourselves having to do this kind of performative identity, you know, navigation. And I think you literally just articulated that in an amazing way because so many of us can relate to that. Um, and, you know, coming from coming from uh, an immigrant family that wanted you to succeed and wanted you to choose a career path that would solidify, like you said, your social mobility, your comfort, your financial stability. How did you end up coming into the mental health field? Also, let alone being a doctor, <laughs> a psychiatrist <laughs> at that, you know, how did you come into choosing that specific career path? Because that is a very specific and a very, I mean, you have to be called to do that type of work. Yes. And hundred percent. And girl, if you were, if I was to be on that kitchen table when my parents were giving me that lecture of education and higher education and how, you know, you need to be able to take care of yourself. I never would have thought that I would be sitting here with you as a psychiatrist. Um, But my experiences are really what led me there. I mean, Um, My first experience was with mental health started with me. I remember periods in my teenage years where I just wanted to stay in my room. I was sleeping during the day. I was up at night. Um, I was just having periods where I just couldn't feel happy no matter what I was doing. And I just kind of wanted to isolate and be alone. And I didn't want to talk to anybody. And sometimes I would find myself crying alone in my room. And those were really hard times, really hard times for a teenager to go through all alone. And I went through them alone because I didn't, it was a conscious decision not to tell my parents because I, I didn't want them to think that something was wrong with me. Mm. And I was also kind of ashamed that I was crying and being weak because I didn't have anything specific to be crying about. Mm. And also, I just kind of didn't think that there was anything that could help me because I I was a kid and I didn't know that there was treatment. So all of this, I just, I went through alone. And I also saw my father struggling, but I didn't piece those two things together. I remember growing up and my dad was just kind of like, one of like the perfect dad, like I loved him so much. He was, um, he coached my, my, my baseball team. He took care of me when my mom was in her final year at university. But then around his thirties, I noticed that he really started to change. Like he would get really upset, like things I would do or say would trigger him, but not just me, people in my family. And he would be more irritable than usual. Mm -hmm. And back in the day when he would be outside with me playing, when he would be joking around with me, instead he would keep to himself And he would always be on the computer. I have no idea what he was doing on there. And he was kind of drinking all the time. Mm. So his alcoholism got really severe and is actually one of the reasons why, before I go there, my dad um, had a medical illness later on in life where his, it was called, it's called sarcoidosis. And it's when your lungs start to become um, basically like scar tissue. And it's like you're wow. breathing into like a, a metal chamber. Like they just don't expand wow. as much. And so he at one point was very severe and he was eligible for a lung transplant. But after reviewing his history, because he had this history of alcoholism, he wasn't granted a lung transplant because oh, they didn't man. feel like he could um, just comply with the appointments. Very, very sad. Um, Honestly, 
the mental health issues that were going on at that time was probably one of the reasons why I was excited to go to college, get away and go to medical to school. To escape. Yeah. Exactly. To escape it. Because I was angry at my dad. I was angry at myself for having those problems. And so I just kind of wanted to get away. And um, it wasn't until medical school that I was really exposed to mental health treatment. And I saw, or I was able to shadow these doctors who were diagnosing what I later found out was what I was dealing with, major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. And I also was able to put a word to what my father was experiencing, which was alcohol use disorder. And maybe mm -hmm. he was even suffering from major depressive disorder. I'm not sure. But I was finally able to put a word to it. And that made me feel very validated. It made me feel seen and like I wasn't alone. Yeah. And then even beyond that, I saw people getting treatment for these things. And so I was like, mind explosion. Yeah. It was so, so exciting to me to finally put it was almost like I was going through my own treatment in, <laughs> in medical school, you know, because I was, I was self-diagnosing to some degree, but it was all making sense, finally. The confusing period of my, time, my life was making sense. And to be honest, like really, real, like really, I was jealous. I was jealous that like there were people that could get treatment and get an understanding of what was going on because if I had gotten that, maybe me and my dad didn't have to suffer. Maybe my family didn't have to suffer like they did. But I was able to, through, I was able to really reflect and channel that energy in a different way. I recognized that I was now given the gift of understanding mental health treatment. I was given the gift of this knowledge and I could now help families families like my own that needed this treatment. And maybe I could help someone like me or help someone like my dad. Wow. I think what stuck out to me the most was just how throughout all of this, you were so observant. It sounds like, it sounds like yeah. you were so observant and even I'm sure like at a younger age, at, you know, in your early twenties or even 18, 17 years old, as a teenager, you were still noticing these patterns. And I think that requires so much attention to detail that a lot of people may not even have. Some people don't even notice, you know, the behavior patterns that lead someone to realize, oh, this person needs help. Yeah. So I think that's what really what stuck out. And, you know, through that, you found your calling. But I think the most amazing part of that is how observant you were throughout this really challenging time of your life. And yeah, speaking of challenges, I would love for you to touch on some of the unspoken challenges of being a mental health professional. I can only imagine that you being a psychiatrist, you seeing people that do have severe mental illness and um, need support and treatment is challenging in many ways. But what are some of the unspoken mm -hmm. you know, issues that maybe some, pub some uh, mental health professionals don't talk about. Yes, yes. So there are a lot of different types of mental health professionals, and we're very lucky in this industry to have that, that wide variation. Mm -hmm. Me specifically, I'm a psychiatrist. So I went to medical school for four years. Mm -hmm. And after that, I specialized um, working with um, adults for mm -hmm. three years. And then I further specialized for two years and I got training working with children. And for, for the people that I work with, usually they have pretty severe symptoms. Um, usually these symptoms put them at risk of danger, like suicide, cutting, maybe reckless behavior that puts them at risk for accidents. So as a psychiatrist, I'm able to diagnose over a hundred different forms of mental illnesses and also know how to treat them. And most of my training was just focused on that, the treatment mm -hmm. of illness. And I think that as a psychiatrist, 
we should be trained also on prevention because mm-hmm. sometimes by the time people see me, there's been so much life that's happened where yeah. they have to suffer. Yeah. And if there was some more focus on prevention, I feel like we could intervene a lot earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I I would love for you to elaborate on the connection between early intervention and someone's healing journey or their mental health um, well-being over time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, really simply put, the earlier we intervene, the less le- the less suffering that person can experience. The earlier mm-hmm. that they have an opportunity to speak with a mental health professional that does a full assessment, that mental health professional can then figure out what is the treatment that can best help this person and how can we get them into remission? And remission mm-hmm. is a period of no symptoms. And then beyond that, How do we prevent further relapses so that we can allow this person to experience life without any mental health issues at all? Yeah. 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 I I think, you know, starting early is how we can avoid or at least prevent people from getting to the point of no return. And Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding when Uh, a mental illness such as major depression gets so severe that someone is at the point of no return, meaning that, you know, they are contemplating suicidal ideation and they have a plan and, or maybe they've even attempted at that time. Mm -hmm. The earlier that that treatment and that support can start, are they less likely to go, you know, to this, this, this uh, space of, feeling hopeless and feeling alone and feeling like their life is not worth living anymore. And I know that might be heavy for some people to hear, but this is real. And we, we have to remove like the uncomfort, the the uncomfortability of of talking about things like that, because that's why so many people are suffering in silence because they can't even talk about it. So if you could speak to that, you know, I would love for you to shed light, especially just from your expertise and your, your background. I think it would be really valuable. Yeah, so one of the one of the things that we're always worried about with major depressive disorder is suicide. And so there's a lot of different treatment options um, when it comes to somebody experiencing major depressive disorder. And so the goal is to try and stop them from go from getting any more severe and also to redirect them into a path of healing. And that kind of makes me think of another challenge um, with my profession, and that's that I have a lot of tools in my toolkit to help with individual treatment. If somebody comes in and I do the assessment and I realize they have major depressive disorder, automatically all the information they tell me is protected. So I can't um, divulge that information to anybody else because it's protected. It's a right. doctor-patient protection. And most of the treatment that I give is un- at the individual level, um, therapy, um, maybe medication management, um, some coaching on how to mm-hmm. make lifestyle changes. And all of those things are really helpful for somebody with major depressive disorder and can be really preventative um, for getting to suicide. But um, psychiatry is a Western medicine and Western society is very individualistic. And I think that it is secondary to the fact that we live in a capitalist society and capitalism causes us to think me versus you and jealousy and what's mine is mine. Um, But in other cultures, you actually see a lot of community care. Like for example, I am West Indian and I grew up with my grandparents every single Sunday going to church. Mm-hmm. And every night and actually every morning, they would pray. Sometimes they would get on the phone with their friends and they would pray. And usually 
it would increase when they needed support. Yeah. And so it's really beautiful what I've seen healing in community. And that's just really not a that that strong of a part of psychiatry. Um, yeah. And I really wish it was. I couldn't agree more. Also, that makes me think of my parents who are definitely on that prayer line <laughs> every Sunday, every week. Um, definitely can relate to that. And I would love for you to talk about not only community care you touched on, which, you know, that's something that I emphasize a lot in Saddie Daddies and, you know, just underline that this is a virtual community. So the healing starts with us, not with just yourself, you know. Um, what are some practices such as community care or, you know, um, grounding practices or what are some practices or um, activities that people can do in addition to therapy, if they have access to therapy, or maybe if they don't have access to therapy, what are some of those practices that they can do um, that can guide them along their, their healing journey if they're mm-hmm. um, ready to start there? Mm-hmm. You know, I'll use myself as an example mm-hmm. because I've done a lot of things um, because I have been so fortunate enough to have a front row seat to all the different things that a person can do. And so I'll start off with um, individual therapy. I've been seeing a therapist for about five years now. And mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> to the powers that be that I've had good insurance and access to some of the best therapists, because I know that not all therapists are created equal. And I've been lucky to find ones that I feel comfortable speaking to that I can afford and that I feel I can trust. And so I'm in a very, there's over a hundred, like there's over a hundred different types of therapies, but I, um, I picked psychodynamic psychotherapy. And this is a type of therapy that looks at your unconscious mind and explores your unconscious mind to try and understand your behaviors today. Mm -hmm. And I really went to therapy with those type of questions like, why is it that I am acting this way in certain situations? And why is it that when I'm at work speaking to this person, I get triggered? Um, I'm very grateful for my therapist because those were questions I couldn't answer all by myself. Yeah. Um, Another thing is I have to go back to my grandparents is seeing them wake up every single day and pray and go to bed every single day and pray. And I just saw this ritual that they continued to do. And although I am not religious, I recognized that through prayer, they were, they were, they were giving thanks. They were giving gratitude. Gratitude, yeah. You know, and yeah. so I started to do that myself, and I do that in two ways. I do a gratitude journal, mm-hmm. and you don't have to go and buy a gratitude journal for forty dollars. You can do it by yourself. <laughs> Truly you can, okay? I'm a ridiculous person for doing it. I did buy it and I love it, but really you don't need one. And then I also do gratitude meditations. And I'm telling you, I know that you do it too. I know that you do. But just for everyone else listening, it sets up your day for hopefulness. It makes you more optimistic. I really, really think it's a good way. I don't do it like my grandma. I do it once a day. I do it in the morning. It really sets up my day. And it provides so much clarity too. Like it literally is a, for me, at least I use it as a a shifting Like It helps me to shift my perspective, especially Mm -hmm. if I feel like I've been in a, in a funk or I'm having a lot of negative thoughts or negative self-talk. I'm hyper-focusing on a, on an issue. It really helps to ground you and be like, wait, wait a minute. You know, let me remember that there's duality here. There is uh, there is a, a softness with the, the hard moments as well, you know? Um, and speaking of that, I would love for you to touch on how different family dynamics, I know that you shared a lot about your upbringing and especially your relationship with your father, but how do different family dynamics affect our mental health um, and the trajectory of our mental health? Because, you know, I can assume that 
people that grew up in a quote unquote stable household with two parents or, you know, you can have two parents, but if your parents are not emotionally available or they're not mentally there or they, you know, you might have grown up with a narcissistic parent or whatever the, the case may be. How does that play into our mental health journeys as adults? Yeah, such a good question. And it's something that I got a lot of, um, yeah, no, sorry. I was just thinking. <laughs> no, it was, no, it's good. such a good question. And it's something that I was able to see a lot of when I was doing my child and adolescent training. Um one thing is that family dynamics, what's going on at home early on in life has a really lasting effect on your identity. It has an effect on your relationships and it also has an effect on your ability to communicate. Really mm -hmm. important characteristics, right? Yeah. And even just with me right now, if you can ask yourself like, when I was a kid living with my parents and my siblings, what is the role that I played in my family? Was mm -hmm. I the instigator? Was I the one who was trying to keep the peace? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were at home, what was the communication when there was conflict? Um, were yeah. you, was your family one to, you know, just suppress it? and not speak about it and hope that it would just go away? Or was there a huge blow up fight? And then, you know, <laughs> you know, those two people have a huge blow up fight and everybody's scared, but you know, no one else comes to console you to make sure to, to remind you that yeah. you're safe. Right. So those are some of the things that I get to speak to, to kids about. Mm -hmm. And I feel really grateful because I'm able to kind of make sense of a lot of chaos sometimes yeah. that happens at home. And by helping kids and giving kids a space to ask questions and try and make sense of what's happening, you're able to intervene early and change the narrative because I'm telling you, these kids are creative, okay? Definitely. Very creative. And kids, yeah. for the most part, are very narcissistic. So if there's a fight going on and they can't hear everything, it's very likely that they're going to think that they contributed in some way. Yeah. And so I'm able to kind of rewrite the narrative and also talk to the parents about how those family dynamics might be affecting them. And so as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I have so much I have a lot of ability to intervene early, but I was finding that with my adult patients, if they didn't have that space to, you know, understand those family dynamics early on, those family dynamics lasted and they would, they would show up, as I said, in their relationships and their ability to communicate. So I would have these 40-year-old patients who would come into mm -hmm. my office telling me that, you know, they're, they went home and they fought with their mom and it felt like they were 13 again. Mm. And it felt like they were 13 again because those family dynamics lasted and they're, they're, they are, you know, repetition compulsion. They're repeating those dynamics decades later. But through adult therapy, you're able to kind of um, talk about those things. Mm -hmm. And then by giving them that knowledge about what's happening, the next time they're with their mom, they have the power to decide, like, do I want to repeat those older dynamics or do I want to yeah. do something different? It's very powerful. Very powerful. That's, yeah, I think it gives us autonomy, right? Yes. It gives us autonomy over how we react, how we, how we respond. Totally. And that's the beautiful thing about therapy. I think that's the biggest gift I also received from going to therapy when I was in grad school five years ago. I learned the way that my brain works. I learned my, the way that my, I, I process thoughts. I learned how I project. I learned how, you know, what happens when I get angry versus when mm -hmm. I'm triggered. And you just learn so much about yourself. And it yeah. also teaches you, you know, to respond versus just reacting to everything. And, you know, the response, there's responding is that 
the the thoughtfulness um, and the consideration behind something happening, whereas reacting is just the impulsive action of, all right, I'm going to just say what's on my mind without even processing it. So I just think that's what is, that's just one of the amazing things about therapy. Beyond it being a safe space, it's learning about yourself, learning your communication style so that you can have healthier relationships with yourself and with other people. Um, and speaking of relationships with yourself, what is something that you would tell five-year-old you? And what is something that you would tell the future you, like the 50-year-old you? Mm. Comes <laughs> through with the reflective questions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, five-year-old me, Chanel, things are going to change in your future. And there are going to be a few things that happen that you don't have control over. And just know that you'll be okay. Just know that it's not your fault. You didn't do anything to make these things happen to you. And right now you're experiencing so much joy and so much happiness and keep that joy and happiness, even though there are some hard times that are coming. Mm, love that. Yeah. Love that. 50-year-old me, um, 50-year-old me. I hope you're pot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you definitely will be, like, without do a doubt. Not start dressing like an old person. Keep your smile. Never, smile. never <laughs> that. Always that. Always fly. Take care of your skin. You know your sunscreen's important. No, like for real. For real <laughs> I have been thinking about this more. Who will I be in the future? Because I'm, you know, as we just said, I'm in this transition period. And transitions always kind of make me reflect to the future. Like, am I making the decisions right now that mm. are creating the future that I want? Mm. And the future that I want is, oh, this is so lame, but just, I want to be surrounded by people that I love. And I want to... That's not lame. That's soft life. <laughs> That's soft life for you. I know what it's like, what everyone says. But yeah, I just want to be surrounded by people that... I care about and that care about me. I want to be around my family. I want to create my own family with my amazing partner. Mm. I want to continue the work that I do. I want to be able to take care of me and my family and then also be able to do work in my community. Yeah. I want to work with black immigrants that don't that those those you know those places are usually under-resourced and I want to have the bandwidth to go in there and help because um, there's nothing like seeing yourself reflected in yeah. other people. There's something really special about that. And I know that my experiences allow me to really work with a certain group. Yeah, building that legacy too. Thank I you. love that. I love Listen, that. I'm trying to follow in your footsteps. I oh, please. <laughs> I'm so happy that we met. I feel like we're so aligned in a lot of ways. So We are so aligned. And I'm so grateful to know you. And you are sharing so much light. You have no idea. Like, you're, you're going to touch thousands of people. Because we have thousands of people that listen to this podcast. Oh, so it's amazing. And, and what you're sharing is going to help a lot of... There's someone out here right now who's listening... And they maybe are contemplating going to therapy or they're, you know, dealing with family issues. And this is an affirmation. So thank you so much. Yeah. Um, speaking of affirmations, everything is a segue here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're taking me on this journey and I'm strapped in. Let's go. Yes. Okay. So what are three grounding practices that you have? Um, mm -hmm. Would love to know. Yeah. So my grounding practices are um, about recentering myself. Mm. I sometimes feel very overwhelmed by things going around, go, things going around around me. And overstimulated. Yes. Family, yeah. family things, everything. So sometimes I need to ground myself and recenter myself. Mm. And those things are um, I have to do these things consistently and it is meditation. 
Mm-hmm. It is nourishing myself with food that makes me feel good and food that reminds me of my culture and my family because eating was a huge part of my family. Um, and then also um, orgasms. Oh, <laughs> period. You heard it here first. I gotta have those, you know, period. I have to. Underrated. Yeah. Underrated. underrated i love that that list needs to be on a t-shirt <laughs> seriously <laughs> like truly nourish yourself take care of yourself make yourself feel good that's what centering yeah, feels yeah. like because sometimes this world makes you feel like you don't deserve it yeah like it yeah. makes you like that's when when i feel like i need to be grounded and centered it's like okay you deserve these things you deserve to be taken care of and guess what you can take care of yourself and you know what you yes. like so give that yes. to yourself yes period wow nothing nothing left to say on that that's amazing i love it. <laughs> you love that because it does and it really does. It's mind, body, and soul. It's, you know, yeah. meditation. It's, you know, the physical, the sensual. That's important. That is self-care. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, what does softness mean to you as a Black woman? Mm. Softness. Just even thinking about that makes me feel happy. Um, softness for me means slowing down slowing down my thoughts, usually thoughts that are critical and replacing them with thoughts that are uplifting and positive, Mm. challenging those negative thoughts that I have with thoughts that make me feel seen and heard. Um, Also reminding myself that I can take off this armor that I don't always have to be this strong person that I can also feel sad and I can cry and I can can feel cathartic to just cry um that I don't have to be perfect and I'm allowed to make mistakes everybody's entitled to their mistakes and I deserve joy I deserve happiness I deserve love and I don't have to earn it you don't period period Period. Period. Thank you. This was such a juicy and wonderful and insightful conversation. Last but not least, we have our rapid fire uh, session, which is the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions just so that listeners can get to know you for real, for real. Okay. So first question, Nike or Adidas? Nike. Da, 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 no, da, da, no, no shades for these, but yeah, yeah. Matcha or coffee? Ooh, matcha. <laughs> Friday night in or go out and party? Oof. You're hitting me with the hard <laughs> ones, girl. You know me. I love I really to go out. But I'll say stay in on a Friday. Yeah go out on a for Saturday mm. <laughs> because it's Friday rest. you just like you yeah. have all that stress from the, okay sorry these are rapid fire I can't get yeah. <laughs> you can elaborate you can elaborate on so just to elaborate like yeah. after the long week I kind of just want to yeah. stay in because I'm a bit of an introvert and I yes. love what I do and I love yeah. speaking to people but it does drain my energy and just being able to stay in and just not speak and yeah. make a delicious meal as I said um, that is 10 out of 10, 12 out of 10 for me. But then Saturday, I like to go dance. Yes, we love it. We love it. Um, okay, your top three favorite comfort movies. Ooh, comfort movies. <sighs> okay, I'm so, this is, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, um, Jurassic Park. I love mm. Jurassic Park, like the whole series. Classic. I watch that. It's so good. Um, I also really like comfort movies. It's very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, Love and basketball. 
Yes. Love that Classic. movie. So, so beautiful. <laughs> and also, my mind is blanking on what's a good movie that I like. I'm gonna like write to you, email you, be like my list after this. Because right now I'm like, I your can't actual list. I can only give you two right now. All good, all good. And last question: yeah. beach vacation or city vacation? Beach, one hundred percent. I am a West Indian an island girl. I need that sun on me. Yes. I need that water. I'm telling yes. you. It's not natural for me as a West Indian to to be away from water for too long. Like I need to yes. go back there. Um, I'm so thankful for my ancestors and um, I feel it in my body. I feel it in my veins. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Chanel. Can you please tell us where we can find you and support you on any projects that you have coming up or just your social media so that we can stay in touch? Because we all do want to stay in touch. And I thank you so much for allowing me to come on here. I got such great details of my life. And I think that they're really important for people to know. Um, Everybody can find me on, on Instagram at Dr. Chanel MD. I would love to connect and continue these conversations about what it's like being second generation. um, All of this. Amazing. And you have some really great informational posts on there too. So definitely be sure to follow her. Dr. Chanel, thank you so much. I love you. I I am sending you love all the way from New York. Can't wait to see (laughs) you again soon. I know, definitely. But thank you so much and have a beautiful rest of your day. To stay connected, join Sadie Baddies on Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and more, and sign up for our monthly newsletter on sadiebaddies.com to stay in the loop. Sending you hella love and stay soft, baddie.